welcome back to the Medical University of South Carolina Science Never Sleeps podcast. It is springtime, which means we are on the verge of regeneration of nature, our enthusiasm and enjoyment of warmth and beauty. And so it is appropriate to turn our attention to regeneration as it relates to biomedical research and to precision medicine as a tool in that research. Today, our guest is Dr. Stephen Duncan, professor and chair in the Department of Regenerative Medicine and Smart State Chair in Liver Development and Disease. A native of Glasgow, Scotland in the United Kingdom, Dr. Duncan received his PhD and doctorate in philosophy from Wolfson College at Oxford University in 1992. He then moved to the Rockefeller Center in New York City to undertake a postdoc fellowship. He transferred to the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee in 1997, where he moved through the ranks to become the Marcus Professor in Human and Molecular Genetics in the Department of Cell Biology, Neurobiology, and Anatomy. In 2007, he accepted a position as the founding director of Medical College of Wisconsin's program in regenerative medicine. In 2015, we were lucky to get him at MUSC, and we are thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome, Dr. Duncan. Hi, Lorette. I'd like to begin with your definitions of both regenerative medicine and precision medicine. Could you share with us? Yeah, so regenerative medicine is um, quite a broad discipline. Um, there, there are many sort of subsets of science fall within this overall idea. Um, regenerative medicine has been around for actually a really long time. It started um, with the whole tale of Prometheus back in um, ancient Greece. Uh, Prometheus stole fire from Zeus, apparently, um, and was <laughs> subjected to everlasting torture by having an eagle eat his liver. And the Greeks knew that the liver regenerated, so the liver regenerated after the eagle ate Prometheus's liver, and um, that gave the the eagle an everlasting meal and uh, Prometheus uh, everlasting torture. So it's a really good way of punishing somebody. But yeah, so, so nowadays, obviously, the discipline's progressed a little bit from tying people up and feeding them livers. Um, nowadays, uh, we really think there's an, an official definition of regenerative medicine that really explains how uh, damaged organs or tissues within the body can be replaced or treated such that they become functional again. So if you think of that as an umbrella, uh, that gives you an idea of what regenerative medicine is. Personalized medicine is a little bit different. Um, it's uh, really a description of how we treat patients as an individual rather than as a group. So if you think about the normal way we treat patients at the moment, um, if somebody has, for example, high cholesterol, um, they're probably going to get a statin because that's the way most people would respond positively and reduce their cholesterol levels. The problem with that approach is that everybody is a bit different. They have different genes uh, that cause different responses. And so although statins are excellent drugs, they're not necessarily the best for you as an individual. Um, and you may outlie uh, the general response as a, as a patient. And so what regenerative, what uh, personalized medicine does, it takes um, information about your genome, your DNA sequence, um, and uses our understanding of, of uh, the code that's within the, within the genome. Um, to really prescribe the best fit for you, the best treatment that fits you best, uh, considering your lifestyle, your genetics, um, and, and, the, and the gene sequence that you have in the cells um, of, your, of your own body. 
So would CRISPR be a, a precision or a personalized medicine tool? It is a tool, but we wouldn't generally think of it as um, a, a, as part of the personalized medicine repertoire. What CRISPR does is allows you to very accurately audit the genome so you can change make changes within people's cells using CRISPR as a molecular biology tool um, but it's a way of treating mutations but it's not necessarily um, part of the toolbox that we would use to decide what types of treatment somebody should have. Gotcha that makes sense. Your department and specifically your lab have done some remarkable work in these areas of regenerative medicine. Would you share with our listeners some highlights of that work? Yeah, sure. Um, so the department is split up into two major areas. About half of the department has investigators that work on um, cardiovascular disease, primarily uh, looking at uh, how defects in valves occur. Um, and that's been a very active area within the department for many years. Um, and uh, when I took it over, it was already a strength within the department. When I came, I introduced a sort of a second arm um, of research within the department, which is digestive disease. Um, so like cardiovascular disease, digestive disease affects a broad range of people. And it's actually very understudied, especially given how many people it affects. So um, over the last five years or so, I've been recruiting some young faculty uh, that have established their own research programs, looking at everything from colon cancer um, to stem cell repair of, of disease, of, of digestive disease, to various aspects of liver disease. Um, so that's within the department. My own lab, um, which, which is housed within the department, focuses on trying to uh, find new treatments uh, for, the, for uh, rare diseases that affect the liver. Uh, most of these diseases affect children, so they manifest in kids. Um, and, and most of these diseases, they really uh, don't occur that frequently, but when they do occur, they're pretty devastating. Um, and most of them don't really have any options um, to treat the kids that are out there. Um, and so what my lab does is we're able to take uh, adult cells from people and change them into liver cells. And that ends up being really important because if you imagine um, if, somebody is some, if somebody has something that is wrong with their liver, trying to do experiments in that person's liver is close to impossible. Um, you would have to go in and take an, a, a biopsy of the liver and then try to grow the cells in the culture dish. What this stem cell approach allows you to do is to basically grow an unlimited amount of, of cells that can be turned into a person's liver cells um, and then basically use that as a platform to identify treatments that can reverse any disease that is associated with these liver cells from the patient. And so if we find a drug, it opens up the possibility then of, of, of treating the patient. So it really is an example of personalized medicine because by generating the stem cells from the individual, um, you are generating that person basically in a dish. Um, and, and then you're under, under ethical, um, acceptable ways able to do experiments on that person's cells I and mean, that really opens up the possibility of then tailoring specific therapeutics to whatever disease that person has. I'm going to ask you a little bit about something very spectacular that you were engaged with in a moment but I want to go back to the uh, taking the uh, cells for uh, adult stem cells and making them into liver cells. Um, 
totally out of ignorance, I'm asking this question, but those liver cells would be uh, provided or, or that liver would be provided to a child. So uh, adult stem cells can become, uh, you know, it's kind of confusing to me uh, and maybe to our audience that adult stem cells can then be put, uh, can be make a liver for a child. Yeah, so, so there's, there's two things that can be used for it. Let's, let's, let's make it more personal. So imagine you come to your hepatologist, there's something wrong with your liver, you're not quite sure what it is. And as the as a, as a hepatologist talks to you, it becomes apparent that maybe people in your family have had a history of, of some aspect of liver disease. Um, and so what we can then do is we can take a very small skin punch biopsy. So we can take a little bit of your skin cells. We can even take a blood draw. Um, and these cells are not liver cells, but we can use pretty advanced molecular biology techniques to trick your skin cells into becoming the equivalent of a fertilized egg, very similar to an embryonic stem cell. Now, that's important because embryonic stem cells and these induced pluripotent stem cells is what we call them, they can replicate indefinitely and they stay relatively normal. Um, and because they're the earliest type of stem cell, they actually have the capacity to differentiate and form all of the cell types that would make you up as an individual. Now, that ends up being important because if within your genes you have a mistake that causes a disease in your liver, and we make stem cells from your skin cells, we then have, we're able to grow up literally billions of cells in the laboratory. If we're then able to take these cells, these stem cells, and convert them into liver cells, we basically now have your liver cells in our tissue culture laboratory, and we can do experiments on them. Um, these experiments can be multiple things. One possibility is what you raised is the possibility of taking the cells, fixing the genetic defect and putting them back into people, including children. And um, that's still very, very experimental. There's a lot of roadblocks before that becomes a practical approach, but that philosophically is, is something we're all really excited about, where you could use these cells basically as a source of spare parts. What we can do now though is, because we can now have your liver cells in the laboratory, we can add basically every drug that is on the market and try to find an off-target effect for an existing drug that now fortuitously fixes the defect that is associated with the cells that we've generated that represent your liver cells. And so if we, if we find one of these drugs, then it opens up the possibility of giving you that drug and hopefully reversing the disease you have in your liver. That is absolutely amazing. It's almost science fiction. Um, and I love it. Let's go, let's get to something that's really um, uh, an example of what you do and uh, the good fortune of working with people internationally. So you had an incredible experience just a few years ago when you were able to make a life-saving difference for a family who had come to the end of their rope. Would you share that with us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so this was a series of coincidences, actually, um, and we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Um, one of the diseases that we work on in the laboratory is a very rare mitochondrial disease. So the mitochondria are really important because they provide the fuel for your cells to work. So if your mitochondria don't work, you don't get enough fuel and your cells die. Um, and so there is a disease that affects children called mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. 
And in these children, their mitochondria fail to produce enough energy. And one of the things that happens is that their livers die. Mm -hmm. And because their livers die, they then can't support all of the um, activities that that the liver provides. And and they end up succumbing to that disease. There's no treatment available. Um, And so we have been working in this disease and um, we use the same approach that I just described to you, where we had stem cells that we had generated um, and we had put in the mutation that the children have. We converted the stem cells to liver cells. And sure enough, under normal circumstances, the liver cells died in the culture dish. So what we did was we screened um, a a library, a collection of 2000 drugs that are currently on the market um, that basically represent every drug that's available to us. Um, And what we found was that actually a very common drug called NAD, uh, which is a form of vitamin, um, had this miraculous effect on these stem cell derived liver cells that were were dying because of the mutation the children have. Um, and so we got very excited about that. We, we did a lot of investigation. We worked out how the drug works and why it rescues the cells. And we also found that if we put the drug into animals that have the same mutation, um, these, these also have, have uh, defective mitochondria, that the drug really improved the performance of the liver in these children. And so we had published that work and I had been in contact with a group in the UK um, led, led by a, a young mother called Connie and Chris Gard. Um, and, and Connie had a baby that also had this syndrome and unfortunately died. And she um, ended up developing a, a foundation to try to raise money for research to try to help kids that were in the same, help parents and kids that were in the same predicament. So she actually contacted me and said, you know, um, there's a baby that has been diagnosed with this mutation that, that, that you've published this cure for. Um, and I've sent your paper to the doctors that are managing the child and they've given the drug to the child and the child's responding really well. Um, so it turned out the child was given the drug. The child was also given a liver transplant. But even more remarkable than that, the, the baby who had this incredibly rare disease. There's only about 300 people worldwide ever have this at one time. But the baby was actually at MUSC, mm. um, which was pure coincidence. Yeah. And I found out about this from this uh, woman in, in the United Kingdom that told me all about it. So um, I, I did some um, searching and um, found out that sure enough, the, the baby had this mutation and, and was on the drug. And so we uh, got permission to meet with the parents. And uh, this was like a, a few days before Christmas in 2019. And I got a chance to meet the little baby um, and the parents. And then the baby was doing really well and uh, was then discharged is back home in in South Carolina. Um, I haven't been able to follow up how things are going, but it's such a wonderful story, Um, especially as a basic scientist. You're you're involved in the nitty-gritty of how cells work, and it's not that common that you actually see that you can have a positive impact. So we were really excited by this. Not only um, was it just fantastic to be able to make a difference, what it told us was that this really complicated approach that we use of of using these stem cells and modeling these diseases, they could be really fruitful and apply to a whole range of diseases. And so now the laboratory is is now looking at a a very broad range of disorders that affect the liver and using the same approach where we're looking for drugs that can be be used to to support these patients. I think it's kind of important to note that, um, you know, the work that you do and you know, what we talk about all the time on these podcasts is 
the beauty of an academic health center is the opportunity for folks like you in the basic sciences who are doing all sorts of innovation and discovery to be able to have that time where you you know you reach out to others it can be translated into um, at some point in time practice healthcare and I don't know that that poor baby would have had a chance anywhere else. Um, what I love also for those people who are not familiar with um, doing uh, biomedical research and having to publish papers and all that, this this is a practical benefit that we're talking about right now about what you guys do. You do the research, it gets reviewed by your peers to make sure it's good. Um, it gets tested to make sure it's replica replicated and then the then the world can see what you've done and then the world can take action on it and i think that's you know what you've just told us the story is a very practical example of the beauty of what we do and the absolute uh, miracle of the application of of your work in in the in the laboratory so if anybody ever questions you know why we spend so much money uh nih money and otherwise well there you go what do you put a price on a baby on a child on a human being um the life of a human being and so i think that's a beautiful thing um how does regenerative medicine inform opportunity for precision medicine and what do you see as reachable goals in the next five years yeah you know the field is is moving at breakneck speed it's, it's really interesting because it's brought together these different disciplines that brings bioengineering which is the creation of organs and, and and things like that tissues in the laboratory it brings in stem cell biology it brings in genetics and genomics and sequencing technologies and all of these areas have really rapidly expanded and become very, very advanced over the last five years. Mm -hmm. And it's now that we're really starting to see the practical applications of these investments from, from 10, 15 years ago. Um, I, 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 you know, all of these new applications, they take time to be to de develop a proven track record, but we're really seeing it now with, with um, uh, how we identify new diseases. It's so, it used to take decades to try to track down a mutation that affected um, an individual and caused the disease. But now uh, sequencing technology has become so inexpensive, you know, many of us have now had our gene genome sequenced. Um, and that information really gives us the blueprint for how a person works. So if somebody's not working, you can go back to that blueprint and, and really read what's wrong with them. Um, and once you understand what's wrong with them, it gives you new opportunities to fix them. And so I think from a personalized medicine standpoint or a precision medicine standpoint, um, having the whole genomes, the ability to sequence everybody's genome and, and see these blueprints really allows us to tailor new treatments for you as an individual rather than as a statistic, which is historically how we how we had to do things. Um, really, we really were, look, this drug um, affects the majority of the people that have this problem, um, and, and let's hope that you fall into that category. Now we can actually look at the blueprints that, 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 that govern how you work and say, well, this drug will help this person, and therefore we should give it to them. Um, it, would also, it also tells us that if we have a drug that may have side effects by understanding the individual, we can understand that this individual will not necessarily 
respond positively to a given drug. So we avoid that treatment. And that's been applied to a huge array of diseases. Cancer has become a really big field where personalized medicine and understanding the person's disease allows tailor-made treatments. Um, another example is CAR T cells, where we're using a person's own immune stem cells to be able to attack the cancers. Um, and that's just really a form of regenerative medicine. So we're really seeing the, the, the techniques that have been developed over the last two or three decades come to fruition. And we'll just constantly be seeing this weekly now that new ideas are coming out and, and, and new new drugs, uh, new approaches, new types of gene therapy, CRISPR-Cas that you brought up. Um, by understanding the genes that are mutated, we can start to fix some of these. Um, so it's an incredibly exciting time in science. We will see um, a lot of breakthroughs over the next five or 10 years. So I have a question for you. Um, you, you talk about you know, that partnership between uh, the laboratory and then testing with various pharmaceuticals. And, um, and I, the way I understand it, you take pharmaceuticals that have already been approved by the FDA and maybe uh, do in what they call an off, one-off kind of um, use for them. So do you think that it, as we get uh, more engaged in uh, personalized medicine, will that how does that affect the pharmaceutical industry? In other words, they can mass produce stuff now like the statins, but then if they're going to, to narrow it down to your particular needs or DNA, how does that, how, I mean, I may be speaking about something that you, you really can't speak to right now, but I'm just curious how that's going to affect the pharmaceutical industry and their relationship with um, academic health. I, mean, I think overall it's positive. Um, you know, the patents that are intellectual property that surrounds a given drug is only available for a relatively short time frame before that patent is lost. However, uh, by, by using repurposing type of approaches where we can find new indications that the drug can be used for, it opens up new opportunities for a company to uh, protect its intellectual property based on these types of findings. That's one thing. Um, but secondly, you know, there's still a very limited number of drugs that are on the market. There, there really aren't that many. Um, and so although we always start with repurposing because we can get into the patients very quickly, because these drugs have already been tested, they've been through clinical trials, we know they're safe, so we can get them into a patient population rapidly. Um, many times we don't find anything when we start with that relatively small number of drugs. So, so under these circumstances, we work in our case, uh, we're, we're lucky because uh, through the MUSC Drug Discovery Center, we have access to a, a really nice drug library. Um, and that has 150,000 compounds. And so when we don't find something that's ideal, we then start to screen the, the drug discovery compound library. Um, and so if we find something new there, it opens up the possibility for protecting the intellectual property, which means companies can then get involved in um, turning these from compounds into drugs, and they can then make money in the long run by doing that. So I, I think I think overall it's a positive. I, I think it's um, it, it it opens up anything that opens up new possibilities for finding drug new drugs. Uh, the pharmaceutical company will be supportive of. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's generally been our experience. It's been positive. Okay, it's um it just sounds like it's a an exciting new development in the whole pharmaceutical industry. Actually, um, you had mentioned previously about you know uh, taking some of my skin and, and making a liver or whatever out of that. 
is there a way to store this stuff if, in case I need it down the road? Let's just say I'm perfectly healthy, but you know, I want to just in case, yeah. um, I, you know, how does that work? Is that even plausible at this point? It's, it's beyond plausible. It's trivial. <laughs> it's, um, so, so when we, so, so it's a little bit complicated, um, but it's very, very easy to do. Um, so basically if I take some of your skin cells, these skin cells are, are, basically adult cells they're they're what we call terminally differentiated they're specialized cells and if we put them in tissue culture they'll double about 25 to 35 doublings and then they become senescent just like the rest of us they get old and, they get <laughs> of course. Uh, and so um, you really can't keep these types of cells around in the culture dish for very long but stem cells are very very different these ips cells that you make from the skin cells so you turn the skin cells into ips cells they have mechanisms that keep them young forever so they don't age um, and you can you can have hundreds and hundreds of doublings of these cells. And if you take care of them, they maintain a no normal genetic profile. Um, they grow normally and they retain their capacity to form all of these cell types that make up you as an individual. Now, the stem cells are very easy to freeze. We freeze these all the time. And so as long as you've got the source cells, then you can grow these up and because they grow forever, we can just double them and double them and double them until we have enough of what we want to do and then turn them into the, 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 the liver cells. And it doesn't have to be liver cells. We can make heart cells. We can make brain cells, neurons, pancreatic cells. You know, basically it is a toolkit to make all of the cells that make you up as, a, as an individual. Okay, so I have to ask you if this is so plausible, if it's just, you know, for you, no big deal. So is there an industry growing up to to, you know, to harvest those stem cells for individual, like especially the wealthy, where they're, where they're stored for in case they need it someday? I think there, ha I think there have been industries uh, growing up. Um, honestly, there's no point really, because it's so easy to make the stem cells from you. Um, it's pretty much routine at that point. Anytime you want to have stem cells, as long as we have IRB approval, um, I can make some for you. It takes a couple of weeks and it's, it's, it's just not that difficult a thing for us to do at this point. Um, so it's, it's um, in the beginning, we ended up, um, so I'm, in the beginning, I'm talking about five years ago, um, <laughs> we were part of a, a large consortium that was funded by the National Institutes of Health to make literally thousands of patient lines from um, individuals that had different forms of cardiovascular disease. And we ended up making about three or 4,000 different patient lines. And these are all banked um, and publicly available. So if anybody really wants to do some research on a given disease, they can just purchase these cells at this point. And so there are so many of these cells around, um, it's just, it's very, very easy to do. And um, as I said, it's become pretty much routine. Um, in the laboratory, there are always complications because of um, um, ethical oversight, so uh, protecting patients as individuals. And so really the biggest challenge is, is making sure that we have IRB oversight uh, to make cells from individual people. And the reason for that, and it's important, is that by making that person cells, you have their DNA, you have any disease that's associated with them, and so you have a lot of information that, that could potentially be exploited, and so that all has to be protected. So a lot of the things that we do is we don't actually anymore make cells from individuals, 
what we have are cells that have already been given approval for us to work on. And then we use genetic engineering, we use CRISPR-Cas9 to introduce specific mutations that we know cause a person's disease into that cell background. And, and, and in that way, we're not making hundreds of thousands of cells from individuals. We really have um, unique lines that we can genetically engineer. And work you, on. you make a very good point, and and I, I think it's one to emphasize with the public that that you take your job and and uh, and the federal government and our academic institutions take their job seriously to protect and right. do no harm uh, with regard to the type of research that you do. So that uh, you know there may always be risk everywhere, but um, we are um, obligated to make sure that um, we we keep secure anything to do with patients being engaged in clinical trials or even in the basic research where you use uh, those cell lines. So uh, I think that's a very important thing to say. And, and um, I know that you take that very seriously. Um, uh, before I go to the next question, which actually does talk a little bit about ethics a little bit, um, it sounds like the, the beauty of what you do and it can also become a tool again for, um, you know, um, organ donations and that sort of thing where right now it's such a paucity of uh, donors. It sounds like it, there may be a time in the near future, not maybe the near future, but in the future where um, one can have um, an organ developed and, and then replace um, a, a dysfunctional organ. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fair. That's the sort of holy grail of what much of the field is trying to do. But it's not going to be that far in the future. Um, we're already seeing clinical trials where these stem cells have been turned into a cell type called the pigmented retinal epithelial cell. So that's a cell that is, um, when it goes wrong, it causes macular degeneration. And so there are already late phase trials where um, the stem cells have been turned into these cells and injected into people's eyes that have lost their vision and have been successful and, and been um, beneficial to the patients. And so we'll, we're starting to see this for many types of diseases. Um, look, some of these will work and some of them won't. It's, uh, putting cells into people is always complicated. It's a very, very complicated procedure. Um, one of the real things that we would really like to see is to be able to use neurons that are designed that are generated from such cells um as a way of treating um spinal cord injuries and mm. car crashes and stuff um where people have lost loose of their limbs use of their limbs and so there have been um, experimental trials ongoing there and there's been some positive results they're very early but it is complicated because for example in a neuron you don't just put in a cell and it it it, it works on its on its own it's part of a community so it has to be communicating with many other cells and so it has to make these connections and that can be uh, really challenging from from the surgery standpoint, just how do you get the cells to integrate in the right place at the right time um, to 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 rescue the the disease that's associated with the damage? That's fascinating. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about an ethic, what I consider an ethical issue. Maybe it's not, but um, I've shared with you that I've seen a lot of advertisements recently about regenerative medicine. You know, there's all these these uh, places where they, you know, they tout some cures and solutions to things. And they have people that come on and say, hey, I've had it done and I'm in great shape. 
So how would you advise the public on understanding or considering the myriad offerings out in the public domain? There will be some people out there that are that are genuine and, and, and are really trying to help and believe in what they're doing. However, it's just so difficult to work out who's a snake oil salesman and who's really bona fide. Um, there are certainly examples where people have had stem cells injected into them for, for example, baseball injuries that have resulted in improvement. We don't really know why it improves them, but there, there's certainly evidence out there that in some circumstances it can be beneficial. But that doesn't mean that everything everybody says is true. And honestly, if you're, as a patient, considering um, a state-of-the-art approach that isn't mainstream, I really advise the individual to go to an academic medical center because it's these centers that are conducting under controlled fashion the most uh, cutting edge techniques. They're the ones that are scientists and physician scientists um, who are skilled in the art of being able to use these treatments. Um, and, and you're going to be in a much safer environment there. You, you had brought up the, the point of, of oversight. We have very, very strict oversight over everything we do. And that, 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 that is important. But that means that the public can have trust that we're not going to be cutting corners. Um, we will be conducting any trial the way we're saying we're conducting them. And we'll have people independent of the research group making sure that we stick to what we're saying. And so people can, can feel safe entering the trial, knowing what the risks are and knowing what the potential benefits are. <clears throat> and, and that's because that's what medical centers, academic medical centers do for a living. That's the difference between an academic medical center and, and a hospital or your local physician. Um, and so places like MUSC, if you if, if you need to be involved in a clinical trial or, or, or experience one of these cutting edge techniques, this is the place where you really want to go. Sound advice. So just following along with that, what concerns when you're talking with professionals in your field, what are some of the concerns about the ability to access precision medicine as it becomes more routinely uh, used? Is that you guys have a whole separate group that discusses, you know, how do we uh, how do we make sure that I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I was reading an article about CRISPR and of course in China, there was a physician who, um, you know, made some claims about what he was able to do with, uh, with uh, the CRISPR tool and, and, and the Chinese government itself took a, took a look at this and said, this isn't right um, and put the guy in jail. But, you know, as this, it seems to me sometimes that innovation uh, rapidly pre precedes any kind of legal infrastructure or safety net for us. So, um, you know, take a look at Google, Facebook, and how data is used now, That all that sort of thing. So how you, as a professional, how, how would you uh, like to see the movement of regenerative medicine and precision medicine as it moves out into the public domain? Um, or what are your concerns about it? I mean, I, I don't have a lot of concerns that are that are um, germane specifically to regenerative medicine. It's more just healthcare in general. We're constantly making advances, and um, the public more than ever get access to that information very, very early in its in its lifetime. 
Um, so as soon as something is, is coming out of the lab, the, the public usually know about it, either from Google or, or, or Facebook or whatever, um, through podcasts like this. That This is really important because we really want the public to understand what we do. The problem is that a lot of the times the stuff that we're doing is highly experimental. And, and we don't know whether it will ultimately translate into something that's going to be beneficial. Most of the stuff we do ends up hit, hitting a roadblock. I mean, you've got to keep in mind that what we're all doing is so incredibly complicated. Um, we can make it sound simple, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what we're doing is is just incredibly difficult. Um, and and to get it to the point where you're going to um, use it on a patient, it has to be rock solid, reproducible, safe. Um, and and as, as a physician, you have to have a lot of confidence in it. So again, because the type of work we are doing is done at, at these academic medical centers, and that's true throughout the country, it's not just MUSC, um, we have tremendous amount of oversight at every level, um, all the way through the development of an idea. There are um, bodies that are reviewing our work and making sure what we're doing is ethically sound. We have ethicists on these panels. We have members of the public on these panels. We have scientists on the panels, physicians on the panels. And their job is to make sure we don't do what was done in China, which is to have someone have a rogue idea and, 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 and really go nuts with it. Um, I think as, as scientists, it's, it's drummed into us very early that ethics is everything. Um, and that's true whether you're reporting results or, or, or generating data. You know, you're only as good as your, as your word. Um, and the other thing that is drummed into is, you know, because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and I think that's a really important philosophy to maintain as a physician as well as a, as a, as a research scientist, that, that you have to stand back. And sometimes it's very complicated and you really need to have people outside your field to explain maybe why it's not a good idea. Um, because you can get very excited about something and think, man, this is great. I can fix these genes and embryos and we can culture them in the laboratory. And then we and you don't necessarily take the time to look at what the impact that could have on a broader society. Um, and so you need to make sure that there's checkpoints along the way. And and, and I think we have that, at, at uh, especially in the United States. It's, we're very strictly governed as to what we can and can't do. And there's constant discussion at every level um, about uh, the types of experiments that we work on. I, yeah, I love hearing this stuff. I see your passion and I see your caution and your thoughtfulness. And, uh, you know, I say this almost every podcast, but what I love about the faculty at MUSC that um, that I interview is that y'all really have, you know what your purpose is and you know that you're there to serve the public in with your skill set, with your creativity. Um, it's we're very, very lucky. This conversation we've just had, it almost seems like fairy tale stuff. So I'm going to try to uh, tamper down my own enthusiasm and ask you, is precision medicine the antidote for all types of diseases and wellness? In reality, it's not. It definitely is not. It's, um, it's another tool that we have. It goes along with all the other tools that we've, we've been developed, that we've developed over, over the years. And the consequence we see as we have a new set of tools, it affects another group of people and allows them to have healthier, longer lives. Hopefully, that continually are productive. 
Um, honestly, there's a lot of the simple stuff still holds true. I keep telling people if we could bottle diet and exercise, then you know half of the drugs that we have to discover you wouldn't need because really, really that helps an awful lot. Um, just looking after yourself. Um, and so, yeah, it will, it's going to have a really positive, beneficial effect on, on society. Um, there will always be questions. There's always questions about healthcare. Can we make it available to a lot of people? How expensive is this stuff going to be? Um, should we be doing it to everybody? And, and these are conversations that you have at the sort of level of politics and um ethics and, and, and you know, outside of, of necessarily my domain. But we see our job is, is really trying to generate these tools and hopefully um, the politicians, et cetera, can, can find a way to make them accessible to everybody, to large numbers of the population um, so that everybody can benefit from them. I think they, I hope that the uh, public, the legislators, the think tanks start thinking about all this stuff because the way it sounds from you, a lot of this will come to fruition sooner than we might possibly think. And so I hope they are ready and prepared. Um, Dr. Duncan, as always, it is a great pleasure to talk with you. you. You explain these complex ideas and innovations in a way that really informs and entertains. And I always leave our discussions with a smile on my face and a renewed sense of what's possible. So I want to thank you for your generosity of time, your diligence in working toward discovery in the lab that could one day change the way medicine is practiced or pharmaceuticals are designed. And I think it's important for folks to note, you probably spend 12 hours a day in the lab doing the hard work and watching you mentor young, I understand you just won a T32, you, you, you mentor people to be that next generation that are working in the lab. And I think it's, it's important for folks to know, this is hard work that you do. It's complex, as you noted, but it's really hard. And it's every day going in there and, and doing the, that microscopic work that could one day change lives. So I really want to thank you for that. And, and for your, um, you're always willing to talk to folks. And uh, that's what I love about folks like you. Um, you really do make a difference. And we're so grateful to have you. So thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Thanks for having me. And it's always great talking science with you. And hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to do it in person. Not oh, too long. I hope so, too. And to our viewers, thank you again for your interest and support of the research mission at the Medical University of South Carolina. It is no exaggeration to say we can't do it without you. Until next time, stay healthy and safe.